Hello and welcome to Talking Talkies. We're your hosts, Benny. I'm Minan. And thank you for joining us. So, before we get into the episode, a bit of housekeeping. Please be sure to click the follow button so that you get an update when a new episode drops. Give us a rating on Apple Podcasts and Spotify so that the podcast can get some visibility. And if you're not familiar with the show,、uh, the premise is that we re- revisit classic movies from around the globe. That at least one of the hosts has enjoyed, and try to answer the question: What works, what doesn't, and how does it hold up today? And in the case of today's episode, don't worry about that last part because、uh, you know it's only been a few weeks since it released.、Uh, also, a word of caution:、um, there will be spoilers ahead, so we highly recommend you first watch the movie that we are going to discuss, then listen to this episode. Before we get any further, I also want to give a warm welcome to my dear friend. And neighbor, and also a professional videographer in his own right,、uh, David Longnecker. Thanks for having me, guys.、Um, yeah, professional videographer is a funny term for me because I I do weddings, which is like、uh, some would consider the one of the lowest forms of videography. <laughs> But yeah, no, I love film and movies and video. You're capturing emotions and something very precious in people's lives, so yeah, don't don't I, downplay that. <laughs> yeah, and I and I think going where social media is headed today, uh, wedding videographers are probably one of the most important sort of the profession. Yes, yes, <laughs> yeah. Thanks, guys. Yeah, no, I mean, I I will say I love the job, but yeah, I love movies, and so I'm just really excited to be on with you guys, and、yes. I loved your uh, premiere uh, episode on La La Land. It's actually one of my probably. Top three movies, so I really loved listening to that. Oh, nice! That's good、Thanks. to hear, David. Thanks. Thanks. David. <laughs> I was trying to convert Minal to La La Land. Uh, uh, mixed, mixed、uh, results, but it's fine. <laughs> I liked it. Like I said, it's not in my top five, top ten, but I did enjoy the movie when I watched it. So, if somebody wants to watch it, I would recommend it for sure. Yeah, definitely. And it made me like musicals. Like I don't like musicals, and so for me,、oh, it was like.、Okay. The first musical that I've ever liked. Oh, so, really? Yeah. Interesting. Yeah, I love musicals, which is why I was like, "Yeah, sure, I'll watch it. Why not? I, I enjoy." <laughs> Come on, I'm like, I'm Bollywood buff, so <laughs> it's ingrained in our system. <laughs> yeah. Well, we are going to get into one movie that both of you will、uh, enjoy talking about, and because both of you have seen this movie twice in theaters.、Yeah. Um, Part of this special double feature phenomena that people have been calling Barbenheimer,、uh, so one half of that.、Um, so today we are going to be talking about Oppenheimer. You are the man who gave them the power to destroy themselves, and the world is not prepared. Truman needs to know what's next. Two, what's next? One. All right. So let's talk about Oppenheimer. So this has been.、Um, so this movie is acclaimed director Christopher Nolan's twelfth film on the life and struggles of American physicist and father of the atomic bomb Robert Oppenheimer. 
It's based on the book American Prometheus by authors Kai Bird and Martin Sherwin. And the film features a stellar cast. I love all of them. Uh, this includes Killian Murphy, Robert Downey Jr., uh, Matt Damon, Emily Blunt, Florence Pugh, and many other Hollywood royalty. And the film, as I mentioned earlier, it's only been a few weeks since it released. It is an ongoing commercial success and has unsurprisingly earned widespread critical acclaim, particularly for the cast, screenplay, and visuals. So a quick synopsis for people uh, who may not have watched it and are still listening to this uh, episode, or even if you watched it and you're kind of like lost in the weeds of like, wait, wait a minute, what was this movie about again? <laughs> so the synopsis is, it's a story of American scientist J. Robert Oppenheimer and his role in developing the first atomic bomb. So the movie follows his journey from a fledgling scientist to spearheading the Manhattan Project that created the nuclear bombs that were eventually dropped on the Japanese cities of Hiroshima and Nagasaki, so effectively ending the Second World War. The movie delves into his personal life, political beliefs, and the strife he encounters after realizing the full scale of what his greatest achievement could do to the world. So let's start from the director himself, because, you know, when I first heard there was going to be a movie about Robert Oppenheimer, I, I, you know, he's someone that probably all of us have learned about in history textbooks. Um, and I was thinking, what can you say about his life? I mean, he's like a scientist who created the atomic bomb. Like, what is there in it? Then I realized, or I discovered that uh, Christopher Nolan was making the film. And I was like, okay. I'm on board. <laughs> um, now, personally, I've, you know, when I think of Christopher Nolan, I think of movies like Inception and Interstellar, Tenet, all of these movies, which are visually stunning, you know, they grab Dark your attention. Knight. You have to Dark Knight. That's Dark my Knight. Dark Knight. Yes. It's like the all-time all -time favorite. <laughs> same here. All-time favorite Nolan film, you know, all those kind of films. And I was thinking, but a biopic, like a Nolan Christopher Nolan directing a biopic. So I want I want to start with that. Like, uh, what are your first, you know, reactions or feelings when you heard that uh, Christopher Nolan was directing a biopic on Oppenheimer? Yeah, for me, like I I really love his like really grand movies, like his um, the movies that really are mind bending and make you really think. Um, and so when I heard he was doing um, his second, I guess second nonfiction movie. Um, uh, Dunkirk being the first, um, I was, it's one of those things where you're kind of hesitant, um, because it's like, I just, I love when he really messes with your mind and whatever. So, um, and I also thought, you know, like with Dunkirk, there's a lot more latitude with the characters and stuff like that, because obviously like that was historical, but at the same time he was able to kind of like make up his own characters and whatever. Whereas with this, it's a very famous person with a famous story. And it's, there's a lot less latitude for him to be able to like do his Christopher Nolan thing. Um, and I, so I think for me, that was um, a little bit hard to get over, but at the same time, I just, I'm a diehard Nolan fan. And so I knew that it would be really good. Um, for me, Interstellar is my favorite. Um, I'm a sucker for uh, sci-fi, especially mm -hmm. Star or not Star Wars. Um, I love Star Wars, but especially um, stuff in space and stuff like that. And so um that plus the 
uh, score was like exceptional. Um, so for me, that's my favorite, but, um, all that to say, I, I went into it with a little bit of, uh, uh, hesitation, but I came out of it, uh, very happy that I went to get to see it. For sure. <laughs> uh, so I'm a sucker for history and then world war two. So I first thought this would be a very conflicting watch especially given what we know, what have, what were the consequences of the creation of the atomic bomb. So I was quite conflicted, but at the same time, it was Nolan. And like you, David, I'm a big, big Nolan fan. Uh, my first Nolan movie was The Dark Knight, and then I traced back his filmography. And then, of course, any Nolan movie that came out after that, I had to watch. I didn't watch Tenet, actually, simply because I didn't understand the trailer. So I said, okay, I, I don't think this, I'm going to digest this. <laughs> so <laughs> I've not watched it. I think I should eventually. Uh, but for me, it was more, I think, Nolan does very layered stories. Uh, what he did with The Dark Knight is he took a superhero and, you know, you can turn it into caricature movies, but The Dark Knight makes you think a lot in terms of, there is so much gray in every character. And it was basically about, at that point, Joker and Dark Knight being very similar. They could have tipped off to the eye. The Dark Knight could have tipped off to the dark side, the Batman, which I loved about how he explores uh, humanity in a lot of his movies. And he makes you think. You're never coming out of a movie thinking, oh, that's a black character and that's a white character. You're always thinking about what else could have gone on to the dark side. So I thought it was such a complex topic in terms of what he was trying to do with Oppenheimer's biopic. And because people, it's triggering and people can have strong feelings about that man. But what I realized is he didn't glorify Oppenheimer at all. And he's left yeah. it to, he's kept that moral ambiguity for the audience to think about what was the consequences. Also, what were the terms of the war in which he was or the times that he was operating in so to me Nolan manages to do great job of layered storytelling and obviously I came out with my mind blown with how the character arcs developed uh, in the film and we'll talk about those uh, some of them yeah 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 when uh so me and David we went to watch this movie together uh, at least for David's first time watching the movie uh, so we went, I remember when we were driving to the theater and we were talking about expectations, like what, what we were going to be expecting out of this movie. And I, I remember mentioning that, uh, for me, it's Christopher Nolan. Like if anybody else had directed Oppenheimer, I would, I honestly would same. not have watched it in the theater. Same, yeah. Um, same, same. So for me, the three big things, uh, after I watched the trailer that made me really, really excited to go and watch the movie, uh, one, obviously Christopher Nolan. But the second was Killian Murphy. I've been a yeah. huge fan of him for many years, particularly for his performance in Peaky Blinders. Um, if you have not seen it, you know, to our listeners, go go watch it. It's on Netflix, I think, right now. Um, and the third is I wanted to see how Christopher Nolan depicts the bombing. Um, I was not expecting them to show the bombing of Hiroshima and Nagasaki because I know that's a sensitive yeah. subject, but at least the testing and even from the trailer, the way the trailer was packaged, I was like, I am so in for this. <laughs> also the poster for a long time. So one thing I really, the, the best part is going into the movie, not reading much about the 
about Oppenheimer, I feel. And also not knowing who is going to star other than the two, three central characters. Okay. Yeah. The surprise element of that is immense as to who keeps coming on your screen and what causes, what impact they cause to the pace of the movie. I think Nolan just nailed it. So I would like to say the casting director has done a stellar, stellar job on this uh, movie. So that anticipation was great, I think, while watching the movie. Yeah, for me, I um I didn't see the trailer, um, oh, which is funny. <laughs> I literally, I heard it was coming out. That's all I needed to hear. And I was sold. Yeah. Um, and it wasn't an intentional thing or anything. Um, I didn't see the trailer. And so when Benny and I were there, it was literally like every other scene. I was like, oh, I didn't know oh, who was in this. I didn't yeah, know who exactly. was <laughs> You know, I, I, I think uh, showing Oppenheimer's cast uh, in a party will be great because it's a great party game. Yeah. Guess who's this and in which movie did you <laughs> know him from? <laughs> but also the poster, yeah. even the posters when they came out, it was just Killian Murphy in the poster and the names were just on the poster. So it was all about the bombing behind and then Killian Murphy and you didn't know what else to expect. So I think that yeah. anticipation that he built was great. Uh so if you compare Barbie's marketing and Oppenheimer's marketing, like completely two different case studies uh, to talk about for marketeers, uh, in yeah. my opinion. So yeah. that that really had got me curious. And I kept telling my husband, look, dude, we have to go watch this. And he's like, look, it's Nolan. We are going to watch it. <laughs> yeah, There was a good logic to the casting, though. Uh, I read oh. in an interview that it was very intentional uh, by Christopher Nolan to use famous actors because... He, he said, you know, it is a dense movie. It's a lot. Of, we're exploring a lot of, we're, first of all, we're exploring a huge timeline, yeah. you know, for over the period of many years, yeah. we're exploring like different events, incidents, um, different topics. He didn't want the viewers to kind of get lost, you know, in the movie, in the sense while watching the movie, thinking, wait a minute, who's this character again? Like, wait, yeah. what's his or her role in this? And his idea was through the use of people, uh, through the use of actors that the audience would recognize immediately, they could put kind of like register that person and register who that person is. And I think that was important um, because there were so many characters in this film to the point I was thinking like Rami Malek, one of the best actors around, and he had a very, very tiny role. I mean, it turned it turned the movie around, right? I mean, it it, yeah. it, is, it is the twist, yeah. it's the plot twist that comes up. Yeah. Uh, yeah. When he came came on to those two scenes, and we should talk about the cameos eventually, I think. Yeah. But when yeah. he came on twice, I'm like, this is impossible. Rami Malek, given his you know filmography, given he's an Oscar winner, there is no way mm-hmm. he's playing a mute character in this film. So I was on the first of all, we got on the edge of our seats. We were like, is that Rami Malek? And then we are like, hang on. Now I'm waiting. When is he going to come next? When is he going to come next? And what is he going to do? So that anticipation for that one hour just stayed in our heads in the background uh, while you're watching the movie. So so it was like, he's, and he did that with many cameos in the film. Uh, yeah. So yeah. So we, we should yeah. talk like, I think we should have a section on cameos. when we. Yeah. We'll, we'll get to the cast later. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Well, I was just going to say, um, you know, when you're making Matt Damon, like a B or a C character that like... <laughs> Yes, you know what I mean. That it's a big cast because it's like I mean he wasn't he wasn't a C character, but he yeah. you know he was in a few scenes, but he wasn't by any means a main character. And it's yes. Matt Damon who's like also a huge actor. And then, yeah, I mean it's just like the whole cast was crazy. I mean, there's even um, I told Benny beforehand I have the 
cast up in front of me because I'm just like terrible with Same. names. Um, <laughs> they even had like Josh Peck in there too. Yes. Um, and I'm trying to think. They just I don't know. It just seemed like every scene had um, somebody new in it. I mean, even Casey Affleck, he was only in maybe I can't quite remember maybe two scenes. Yeah. Two he scenes, did an yeah. amazing. He did an amazing job, and he you know, he's like a big name actor, you know what I mean? But yeah. two scenes. Yeah. But you know yeah. about Matt Damon, I've been like a lifetime, I think, fan of Matt Damon. I've, I've watched most of his movies. I have loved them in every movie. And I came out of Oppenheimer thinking, oh my God, I've not actually done justice to Matt Damon in terms of my fan, you know, like fangirling over him. <laughs> because I just feel like I've taken him for granted that I'll go for a movie. It stars Matt Damon and he's going to be awesome in it. And I'll come out of it, you know, like not going singing praises or anything. But I just realized after Oppenheimer, like he is so awesome. Like every movie yeah. of he is, he's just brilliant. And his character I loved because it changed the pace of the movie for me. Initially, I was like, yes. oh, what's going on? You know, too much of physics, maybe. I mean, yeah, Nolan makes physics very interesting. <laughs> no question about it. But I'm like, okay, what's happening next? What's going to go on? And then Damon comes in and just <laughs> blows you away. I have to say, I have to say that Matt Damon is one of those actors. Probably he's the most famous, like, almost like secondary character in a lot of films. He makes a lot of cameo appearances in films. Um mm. Like even in like an interstellar, you know, yeah, he just yeah. popped up in the second half. Um, yeah. And even like in the Marvel films, like he's made like he, he makes a cameo in the Thor movie. Um, he loves doing these favors for uh, <laughs> directors. Like he famously said that uh, he, he had actually agreed or he's spoken to his wife and decided to take a break from acting with one condition that if Christopher Nolan ever called him that he would go and act. And of course, yeah, as it turned I, out, Christopher Nolan asked him yeah. to come on to the movie. So, but yeah, he's just one of many uh, actors who were utilized well. You okay. know, mm -hmm. obviously Oppenheimer, main character. And we can talk about the main cast. We'll, we'll talk yeah. about them more later on. But um, there were so many characters who just came on for a few scenes and they had a, a very impactful appearance. Uh, I mean, Josh Hartnett, a face that I thought I would never see again. Mino, you oh, wanted to uh, say oh something about I it? Oh my God, I have to, I have to talk about this. So uh, Lawrence comes on screen and I am like with my mouth open, oh my God, who is this good looking guy? And I'm like, why have I seen him? Why can I not place him? And throughout the movie, obviously, it just doesn't register. And I've been complaining to Benny, like, I think I'm losing my memory, okay, on many things. <laughs> things which I knew at the top of my head, now I have to, like, Google. So all the time, I kept telling my husband, who is this handsome guy? And I come out and immediately Googled. And I'm like, Josh Hartnett, like, Pearl Harbor and Black Hawk Down. I'm like, he has aged like fine wine. I really enjoyed watching <laughs> on my screen. And I was like, whoa. <laughs> immensely impressed with what Nolan has done for Josh Hartnett. You know, interesting thing when I was reading up on so many things, I went down a rabbit hole post Oppenheimer. Josh Hartnett was actually in discussions with Nolan for roles in Batman Begins, the title mm. role and prestige. And wow. both didn't work out. And he has regretted. He said he didn't want to be pigeonholed as a comic book character. So he didn't go for Batman Begins. And then Christian Bale, impressed Nolan so yeah. much got cast for prestige and I was like oh my god what a loss for his career and he's like yeah. I regret saying no to Man, Nolan I... amazing isn't it 
and you know there there are other actors uh we, we talked about Rami Malek who in a few scenes he makes such a huge impact Gary Oldman perfect he's played Winston Churchill and Truman so he's the go-to for historical leaders apparently and one scene just delivers such a commanding performance um we also have Tom Conti who played Einstein and honestly the whole time i was watching you know the scenes with einstein i never thought it was an actor it was to me it was einstein, <laughs> einstein. <laughs> yeah, um yeah. and other uh, nolan favorites like kenneth branagh casey affleck um alden i don't even know how to pronounce his last name alden erendrike who plays yeah. the assistant to you know the character played by robert downey junior uh if i remember correctly he was touted as the next big thing in Hollywood many years ago and then he kind of oh. faded away after that was like a flop and mm. kind of faded away but he looks like he's making a comeback because there are other movies too that's in the pipeline he did a very good job too but yeah these guys uh, you know all secondary characters people that you know characters that you may not really think about when you think of Oppenheimer in a few years but they all contributed to you know in their own ways to contribute to the success of this film so i want to jump straight into the theme of the film because when i first heard that nolan was making a biopic i was like i don't know because to me i feel like christopher nolan needs fantastic concepts like he needs to create like magic and out of you know like really interesting concepts but concepts that many critics also call like very hard to fathom you know like as as uh, you know there are a lot of fans of Christopher Nolan films sure you know people love inception i love inception yeah. interstellar tenet but equally there are people who are just left scratching their heads when you walk out of this movie like not understanding like the what happened in the movie like what is the plot of the movie and there was this one observation made by a critic which I think that's true for me too is that a lot of the time I feel like Christopher Nolan is a master at leaving leaving you in awe of his films and of the yeah. characters in his films but he doesn't move you you know mm -hmm. you you don't get attached to the characters or you don't feel with the characters but you're left impressed with it and I feel like that's actually true uh, at least in my case I feel like even with this movie and I'll talk about you know what how I felt about the movie too but overall that's the sense that i got and i was really curious about how he would present a story about the scientist who obviously you know changed the world in his own way what is how is nolan going to present it and the theme that he did so i'm i'm very curious to hear your guys takes on how he presented the theme like in your opinion how he presented you know the story of oppenheimer through this movie and if that worked for you it's interesting because it's like at the at you know from one perspective it this is like a historical it's a biopic you know what i mean um but really when you like sit down and watch it um to me what really stuck out is that it's this uh struggle between um it's like this big struggle between people who disagree and it's also a kind of like the entire movie which is kind of headed off by that very first frame um where it's talking about it says something about prometheus i don't have the quote memorized but prometheus gave humans fire and for that they tortured him or they tied him to a rock and tortured him yeah. for eternity 
And so for me, like, in my mind, the main theme to the entire movie is Oppenheimer's regret for what he did. Um, and I can go into kind of like more of the details of on my second viewing, how I like really was able to pick that apart a little more. Um, but it's just really interesting um, how Nolan portrayed um, sort of his, his regret and sort of how he uh, it, it's kind of, there was kind of like two acts, you know what I mean? The before the bomb and after the bomb essentially. Um, and it, it's just really interesting to see how the score and um, you know, even just like the pacing of the film kind of changed before and after that. And kind of, I don't know, it, it you could just tell that it was such a big moment in his life. Um, and so for me, that's like all I can really think about is how um, basically how what happened in Japan affected him. Um, and essentially he never, you know, he tortured himself and never, never forgave himself. In my view, that's really what happened. I think I would echo David's uh, views. I think we, obviously a lot of people uh, treat Oppenheimer as the villain, right? Why would you invent? Mm -hmm. Why would you put your knowledge into inventing an instrument or a weapon that would mass destruct uh, uh, and you know probably even end the world why, why were you not thinking straight but there was a very interesting point that got captured in one of the dialogues where he says I don't know if what the Americans will do with it but I know what the Nazis could and why it should not yeah. end up in their hands and why they should yeah. not win the race so my my again uh there's been a little bit of criticism on the movie, right? It didn't depict uh, sympathy for the victims or it didn't talk about the victims or the post-bombing, etc. But the movie is not about that. The movie is about Oppenheimer. Yeah. The movie is about his life. The movie was written, the script was written in first person. Oppenheimer wasn't there to drop the bomb. He knew the consequences. No, nobody, there's nobody, there's no person who didn't know what the consequences were going yeah. to be. Right. He knew it, but he wasn't there uh, when that happened so this is from his point of view what he has gone through and there is a scene where he says can i come to washington and matt damon says why not no why that's when it hits you as an audience that he's lost control of his creation yeah, he was asked used to deliver him, and his they purpose is him. done yeah and it's done you're out you're out we don't care we don't care about your opinions you don't matter to the system yeah. it's as simple as that but the thing is those were the times and none of us we are very privileged we have not been in those times uh, where the world was at war and we don't know what was happening to people and what decisions were being taken so it's easy to judge sit here and be privileged and judge what should have been done what should have been not but we don't know what the circumstances were at that point and yeah what I liked, really liked about, that's what I think Nolan came out is he didn't tell us whether Oppenheimer was a villain or a hero. He left it to us to decide and interpret what do you make out of it. I have put forth the facts in front of you. I have shown what his moral dilemma was. He did have regrets. And another, um, I don't remember the exact dialogue, but uh, Kate, no, Kitty, his wife, tells him, you think they're going to forgive you? for your sins nobody will and you have to live with that guilt for the rest of your life because you took a decision to do what you did so yeah. Yeah. 
sometimes there is no redemption for certain uh, actions and i think oppenheimer lived with that uh, so when you were right in a way you got me thinking when you said uh, nolan's movies don't get you invested in the characters or think for the characters yeah. i think i only felt that for batman uh, in the dark knight uh, where i got invested in terms of oops it's it's tricky he could trip over to the dark side any moment he is pretty much bordering yeah. on what joker joker's philosophy in life is batman also kind of loves chaos and loves being the savior uh so right. that got me invested but you're right actually you don't get emotionally invested in nolan's characters and i think that's intentional i think he did that he, yeah but i think he changed yeah. that in oppenheimer yeah. it's intentional but i think he changed that a bit in oppenheimer there were a couple of characters i really really got invested in one of his was kitty <laughs> and we <we'll> talked <laughs> about why <laughs> yeah i mean Nolan the one thing I'll give credit for Nolan I mean among many other things is that he's he's very good at exploring human nature yeah. in in the unlikeliest yes. of contexts. Yes. Like I mean you think of the worlds of Inception, Interstellar, and Tenet, but he as much as he dazzles with the visual uh storytelling part of it, he explores what it's what is going through the heads of people and Oppenheimer is probably like the best work, his best yes. work in terms of displaying that and he got the perfect actor in Killian Murphy. I don't know yeah. how many <laughs> actors there are who can convey so much just through their face. Yeah. Right? Yeah. Just yeah. the expression like his eyes. Oh my god, you know, his glass eyes. I'm just in <laughs> love with Killian's expressions. Oh my god, if, amazing. If I wrote if I wrote a character, someone who's going through inner turmoil and he has to act that without the use of dialogues like i can't think of too many people better than gillian murphy he's just got that face he's got the posture um and he, again that's something that he does in peaky blinders too but in this he's obviously not as violent so he's a lot more toned down but you could still see the inner struggles the pain the torment that he has uh he's a smart person he's a genius but he's doing something that could you know end the world so to speak because they don't know yet and for over the course of 3 hours he's Kelly Murphy is up front and center stage right because his movies about the character that he's portraying he has to do a lot of the heavy lifting even though he's surrounded by a lot of great actors he has to do the heavy lifting and over the period over a period of time so i think for nolan to say hey this movie is is about the person who helped create the first atomic bomb but it's not really that straightforward here's the context you know the years leading up to you know the testing of the atomic bomb and also after that post you know post that how it affected his family life uh how his politics uh were also uh was involved in this and i thought you know that the first i'm going to talk about the pacing of the film because that's one thing that i had an issue with uh but i was thinking how can you make 3 hours movie out of this and somehow <laughs> i came out of the movie kind of thinking still thinking about the movie i think the best films are the ones that you still think about once you've finished watching it you yes, know like for, sure. for days or weeks to come you're still thinking about the movie like that's the kind of movie i want to watch in that case yes nolan did uh, a very atypical biopic because most biopics you know they're pretty yeah. standard like Yeah. You you have the facts just depict that and maybe add a little bit of dramatic flavor done. 
but with Christopher Nolan, he's exploring so many themes. It's really heavy. And, you know, like you guys, you know, you got to watch it <laughs> two or three you gotta times. got to watch it twice. Really <laughs> in, my, in my view, you got to watch it twice, um, honestly. So in that case, in, in that case, I think Christopher Nolan's version of presenting this picture or the story of Oppenheimer, it was effective. It, it was heavy, but it was effective. And I think, I think he did justice to it. It's not, I don't think everyone is going to be a fan of it because yeah. uh, many people would have gone in thinking, oh man, I want to see the testing of the atomic bomb and how cool that is. Yeah. Uh, yeah. But then they were subjected, especially for the first hour and a half, to <laughs> all these random scenes that you're like, wait a minute, what is going on? Why is it taking so long? Which is a great segue into the pacing of the film. That was one of the things that I really didn't enjoy in this movie. Uh, but for you, Mino, did that work, the pacing of the film? Uh, so when I went in, and see, my fear is from, uh, I know, David, you said Interstellar is your favorite movie, but I had to watch it twice to make sense of what's going on, because I felt there's too much of <laughs> yep. physics and sci-fi concepts. And I had to actually talk to my one of my genius friends to get me to explain the concepts of time theory, and all of that parallel yeah. multiverse, whatever was happening. Okay, <laughs> so I when he started, uh, the movie was quite focused on quantum physics and the concepts though he did make it sound very beautiful I must say that and I kept telling my husband I wish I had a physics prof like this who made physics so interesting I would have loved it um I did think it was going a bit slow because I'm like what's happening next I know Oppenheimer's a great scientist and a physicist and you know what's happening next can you tell me um it's only when I felt that when Matt Damon makes an entry and then how it paces up to the lead up to building uh, the whole site at uh, Los Alamos uh, and then the whole Manhattan project kicks off and then they're scouting for scientists. I think that really got me into the movie. Then I was like, okay, I'm on the edge of my seat. Now I know want, want to know what's happening. So if Nolan had continued explaining the lead up to the Manhattan project, I would have probably been a bit bored. But Matt Damon, I think, came at just at the right time. Uh, and change the it's yeah i agree same what i was most impressed though is you think the testing of the atomic bomb is the peak of the movie <laughs> but i'll be honest i was floored by the bomb scene and david we'll talk about it like i said in detail because we want your insights yeah. but to me what he did in the last one hour with that hearing happening in parallel uh, with strauss and we have to talk about robert downey jr's performance and the hearing that is happening with Oppenheimer, the closed door hearing, which is, again, a vindictive uh, thing that is happening against him. The parallels that were being drawn just hooked me completely. I heard on one of the podcasts, they found they lost interest in that hour. And I thought that was the biggest twist of the movie for me. The way the, mm. how can you make something so mundane and boring as a Senate hearing and a closed door room trial. So interesting. I think only Nolan yeah. could have done this. So yeah, I enjoyed it. I mean, it. The, the secret to that is I think the writing, the writing has to be good, like the dialogues, right? Because everything is bordering on the dialogues and you're telling a story just through dialogues more than, you know, visual depiction. Then the actors themselves, like you mentioned, Robert Downey Jr. If he wasn't on top of it, you know, yeah. that would have kind of fell flat. 
Um, and of course, the way the whole it was just presented that second yeah. half. So yeah, that and was that's why I actually special. told my friends, do you know what role Strauss played uh, in Oppenheimer's? Do you know the connection or the role that Strauss played? And they were like, no, don't we need to read up? I said, then don't read up. Just go because I, I didn't know about the hearing. Okay, honestly, I didn't know about yeah. it. So it was a great plot twist that comes to you. Yeah. So I and I told my friends, if you don't know what happened with Oppenheimer post atomic bomb, don't read up. Just go watch the movie. Then you come back and go yeah. and dive into a, a rabbit hole of Wikipedia's and all articles, etc. Yeah. So no, I totally agree. My friends, my friends thanked me for that. They're like, oh, we wouldn't have enjoyed it as much then. So. Yeah. <laughs> I'm kind of a weirdo when it comes to pacing. Um, I really love slow movies. Um, so, <laughs> like, I don't know why. I don't know what's wrong with me. Um, but I just. You're really the only love... person who's recommended to watch The Tree of Life, which I've heard is the slowest movie. <laughs> so I can believe that when you say that you love slow movies. Yeah, yeah. Um, so for me, actually, so the first, um, let's just say the like first uh part of the movie reminds me a little bit of tree of life now obviously it's much different setting and stuff but the way that uh nolan used like visual textures and stuff to show you what was going on inside of oppenheimer's head his obsession with matter his obsession with like nuclear physics and whatever all the crazy stuff that was in his head he used um he used really good visuals for that. The score for that part of the film is my favorite part of the film for uh, score wise. Um, And even just showing him looking at architecture and, you know, Picasso's paintings and stuff like that is showing that kind of, there's this, let's say like a revolution. I I think there's a quote in there. He was saying something about, well, there's a revolution going on. Like, can't you feel it? Like there's a revolution going on in physics, but then and also in art in, in other things like, that's even why he was like playing around with the idea of communism is it's kind of this like revolution of thought and stuff like that. Um, so for me, actually it's, I can't really pick a favorite scene or part of the movie, but I just, I really loved the beginning because uh, I just felt like Christopher Nolan used so many different elements to help you see the internal turmoil, turmoil that's kind of going on inside his head. Um, I'll also say about the movie is for a movie that is about, the biggest explosion ever there are just way less explosions than you think there's going to be and there's yeah. way less <laughs> congressional hearings than you think there's going to be like yeah. you know good point a traditional <laughs> a traditional filmmaker would have come in you know kind of set it up told the story of maybe a little bit of introduction to oppenheimer but the big pinnacle of the movie would have yeah. been this massive explosion and that would have you know the score would have swelled and you just would have been yeah. like this is the moment you know what i mean but like like you said it's just not that that moment falls flat i think it was cut very well oh, um, and excellent. it was really interesting yeah. to see them t- test it but that's kind of like i don't know it's just kind of on the trail on your way to the like bigger part you know what yeah. i mean um, yes. and so i think that is the genius of nolan is he's able to uh you know, you, you come into a movie expecting something and he always, every single time, ch- flips that on its head and, you know, challenges you in other ways. And so I just, for me, I really like the pacing. I will say three hours is an excessive amount of time for a movie. Yes, um, yes. <laughs> I want to hey, say- We're used to it in Indian films, but yes, oh, yeah, it's yeah, yeah, yeah. for a Hollywood so, film. 
Yeah. So David, no, we are so, used to three-hour films, and that's okay. No. But there is a concept of interval, intermission after one and a half hours, where you pause yeah. the movie for ten minutes, let people get a loo break or a coffee break. In Seriously? UK, they don't have that, so you're just sitting there. But for the first yeah. time, I have not complained that the movie was three hours long without a break, and I went through it twice. Okay, and I'm like, I was just so hooked <laughs> to what's going on. <laughs> yeah. No, I actually. I had to go to the bathroom really bad the first time around, but I, I just sat through, you know, I dealt with it. Um, I didn't want to miss anything. Then the second time around, I went a couple of times because it's like, who cares? I already know what's going to happen. I know um, what's going to happen. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, you you kind of knew which scenes to get out to and get your loo break. I think that's, that's yeah, important yeah, exactly. the second time. <laughs> Although that said, I'm like, it's a three hour movie and I don't have the best memory, but like still, I'm like still confused about what scenes what. And it just says yeah. like, that you know, it's the way that Christopher Nolan likes to write his movies. He he's said um, previously that most of his movies are like noirs, which is like a French style movie where it's like you have a dark hero and um, mm-hmm. there's often a lot of like uh, flashbacks and stuff like that. And so he's, it's kind of like if you were to take a traditional story and then throw it into a blender. That's like a classic Christopher Nolan movie. Um, so it, it's a little confusing, especially on the first watch. But like, yeah, I just I think he nailed it. Um, what he said about the, why it's confusing uh, when it starts off where you know uh, the hearing the senate hearing is uh, uh, sorry his uh, confirmation senate confirmation hearing is happening and then there's the yeah behind closed um, doors yeah behind closed the doors of Oppenheimer exactly but uh, at the same time then you go start off when Oppenheimer was young so there are like three timelines happening mm-hmm. so it takes you about 15-20 minutes to understand and place the characters and understand what's going on so yeah. but that's very typical Nolan trait also I feel yeah. he likes to confuse the audience in the initial 15-20 minutes oh, yeah. so and not to, once you get a hang of it you're okay fine then you're hooked in yeah yeah and not to mention that he doesn't really fully explain what the closed door hearing yeah. is or the senate Correct. hearing is until like the end of the movie so the whole Correct. time you're kind of like <laughs> You get what's going on, but at the same time, you're kind of like, wait, why is this why? happening? And then at the very end, it kind of like reveals the whole thing. It's just like, yeah. and this is why it's such a good movie to watch twice because yeah, like, obviously you're not going to, the twist isn't going to be as big of a deal, but what it does is when you go back and watch it, everything just like comes together like the perfect puzzle. And um, yeah. like when I walked away the first time, I, I was kind of like, I wouldn't say I disliked it and I wouldn't even say um, that it was like a medium movie. It was just like not, it didn't blow my, blow my mind like most Nolan films do. But the you second said you were kind around, of disappointed the first time. Yeah, around. a little bit, a little bit. Oh, but when okay, I went back, interesting. Yeah, but when I went back the second time, um, things just like fell together so beautifully that like, I just, I ended up really liking it a lot more the second time around. For sure. Yeah. It, it helped I, I watched it in IMAX, but... My God. I walked out, I we walked out completely mind blown. I was like, what an awesome movie. And it so happened uh, on my group chat with my close friends, my friend had just watched it in India. So he was three hours ahead of me. And he'd written, and I had not checked my phone, obviously. So with the first message I type and I check and I'm like, we both wrote the exact same words, like literally, like it's a brilliant movie, guys, go watch it. And then next day, I called him and I said, look, dude, I have to talk about this movie. Uh, so I spent like an hour discussing with my husband. Then I went into a rabbit hole and then I messaged Benny also. I said, Benny, you should watch because I think we need to cover it on the podcast. <laughs> and 
the next day i yeah. spent an hour talking with my friend and then i said look i think i need to go again of course i have to watch it again because i wanted to watch the characters and pay more focus to the characters i missed in the first time around so i think on my second viewing i loved it even more actually yeah. so yeah so for for me i think what made it so good the second time around um was obviously you know there's the twist at the end and you can kind of see yeah. that coming a little bit more the second time around but for me um there are a lot of elements that nolan used that were a little confusing the first time around so for example the use of color and black and white which we can go into yeah. later um it like the second time around it was a lot more obvious why he was using it versus it kind of like it was kind of there um and then the other uh thing for me uh it was kind of like a subtle de- or not so subtle detail but like a small detail that he used to in my opinion kind of like keep pointing to what the main moment was and what the main like you know reasoning behind the whole, the whole film was is like anytime that there was a scene where there was like stomping from that you know it's mm-hmm. the audio clip from the scene when they're celebrating the dropping of the bomb yeah. um anytime that they're stomping in the film is a time that you can tell that Oppenheimer is, reg- I-, I would say, regretting what he did. And it's kind yeah. of like a realization of kind of like, oh no, what did I do? And so I think the first time around, it's one of those things you're like, okay, I know this is something that keeps happening. I'm not really sure what it means. And then finally, you understand what it means, but you can't quite remember each time that it was used. So that's why the second time around, it's like, it really shows you kind of like these moments that are really like crucial moments for Oppenheimer. And so I thought that was, um, that's why I really liked watching it the second time. It yeah. it felt like it all kind of like came together in my mind the second time. So, yeah. But that's it with Nolan movies. I think to truly appreciate his genius or what he brings to filmmaking, you have to watch them two or three times. That's, that's when yeah. your admiration for his genius grows and grows. Like yeah. I had a rewatch of Dark Knight just this Sunday. And I was thinking, oh my God, so many things, because this is like Dark Knight was like 15 years ago, right? Yeah. And you, I watched it twice in the theater then, and then ample rewatches at home. But I was like, I miss this. Oh, Joker was like this. Get you thinking again and again yeah. about how he has played around with the characters and the scenes and why that dialogue is pivotal to the moment. And it's just, he's amazing. Um, yeah. What I came out feeling actually after the movie is, Nolan needs to direct direct his own biopic. I will go. <laughs> <laughs> That's awesome. He could there is no that. other man who yeah. can do it. <laughs> he could make that look exciting. It's just the life of a director. Um, you know, I think the biggest takeaway for me, just from hearing the both of you talk about this, is I probably need to watch it again because <laughs> I did not enjoy the pacing because the first hour I felt could have been trimmed to probably like a sharp 25 35 yeah. minutes which is probably it, felt, it looked like a montage almost like there were like a lot of scenes that kept like just floating by like fast dialogues and then move to the next scene move to the next scene yeah. and the background score overall it was great but in that first hour i just felt i don't know i, I almost felt it was a little too overpowering for me yeah that's an interesting thing because i remember um after the movie came out i went back on rotten tomatoes and was seeing like how it scored and it scored really well um, i'm not sure it's like mid 90s or something like that um with the critics and i went back and looked at a lot of nolan's films um on rotten tomatoes and one of them that i looked back on was tenet which didn't do as well um yeah. i think yeah. 
it was the classic Christopher Nolan where like you don't really care about the characters. Um, I think it's in a, in my opinion, it's probably one of the ones you care least about the characters in. Um, but anyway, one of the complaints that somebody made was like, oh, the score was way too loud. You know what I mean? And I remember hearing an interview or something with Christopher Nolan when Interstellar came out. And that's another one of his films where there are scenes where you can't quite tell what somebody's saying because the score mm. is just like so loud. Yeah. Um, and I remember him saying that it's actually a really intentional thing that there are certain parts of it where you're like not necessarily supposed to hear what they're saying or like you're kind of having to like lean yeah. in and it's this way right. of adding even more tension than just a dramatic score would. It's like, it actually makes you like, um, it challenges you to listen in here. Um, and so I think that was the beginning, um, especially, um, I was actually listening to the score this morning and it's, um, can you hear the music is what the song is called. Um, and it's that scene where, like I was saying earlier, where he's like discovering architecture and, and, and yeah. art and stuff like that. Um, and then when we went to IMAX, I mean, I, I'm sure every theater is a little different. Um, I think they try and make it about the same volume, but it was to the point in the IMAX theater where it was almost like ear piercingly loud. Like it was like yeah, almost obnoxiously loud, but yes. knowing what I know about Christopher Nolan, I'm like, that is on purpose. Like it's supposed to be overwhelming because it shows you how like overwhelmed Oppenheimer was in that period in his life. And so I think, you know, he, he he's not outright about that a lot, those kind of elements, but I think he's really good at making you feel things that you don't even know you're feeling almost. So, um, so I thought that was a really interesting um, piece of that. Yeah. So I think good time to give a shout out to Ludwig Göransson. The yeah. music was by him because, yeah. you know, his past movies has been Hans Zimmer, who's like brilliant. And yeah. I really enjoyed the background score. I think it, it was almost like one more element member of the cast. And without that, it wouldn't have been as effective. And that's a part of his movies, right? That's his trademark. Yeah, rate. always. He so much attention to the music. So to yeah, me, like, that. to me, it goes like, I want to say like director, maybe main actor, and then who does the score. Sometimes it's yeah. flipped. I think sometimes the whoever composes is like almost one of the most important people. Like Most important and people. I agree. Christopher Nolan's always great at picking those, the perfect person. Um, and Ludwig, like he did uh, Mandalorian that I saw that on his bio. Um, and honestly, I think Mandalorian is one of my favorite um, scores for a TV show, maybe ever. Oh. I, I just love the music mm-hmm. in that. So I'm not surprised he knocked it out of the park on this one for sure. It was excellent. No, you're, you're right about uh, the musical score uh, being, you know, really effective, especially in the scenes where, you know, they're, prior to the testing and after the testing, because, yeah. you know, he does not, there's no music. There, actually, there's no soundtrack. No, <laughs> there the is no the, soundtrack in that uh, The testing, right? It, it's amazing yeah. when you're watching it in theater, there's like silence. Yeah. Nobody's moving, <laughs> nobody's eating popcorn. Uh, and on the screen too, there's like no sound. Yeah. You know what's happening, you know what's going yeah. to happen, but it's so effective. And yeah. I think yeah. the important part of music composing which a lot of indian music composers could learn from is like you don't have to just put music all the time you can like, <laughs> yeah. take a step back Correct. And, just pause. Correct. Um, and i thought and you, you mentioned this this was also very effective and this is probably more to do with sound sound design like the stomping i remember yeah. that scene that was so jarring because oh you could God, feel yeah. as a viewer you're, you're tense 
yeah. you know, even though this is something that's happened decades ago and yeah. it's stomping adds to that jarring feeling of like, this is uh, a momentous event in the history of the world. And the architect of that is going through a whole range of emotions because yep. that scene where he's essentially giving like a celebratory speech yeah. right, to this cheering group verbally, you know, he's like saying, yeah, you know, congratulations to us all. We did it. I wish we could have done this sooner, that kind of thing. But Christopher Nolan through the use of sound, but also his visualization of what's going on in um, Oppenheimer's mind, like the two very dissonant, yeah. very different things, you know, like the sound and the music is, I think, an integral part of that. So in that respect, yes, trem tremendously done. So let's kind of jump into the scenes itself. I know there are a lot of scenes uh, that stood out for us and you could talk, talk about it from the perspective of if that worked for you or if it didn't work for you. Um, and I think foremost, we've got to talk about the Trinity scene, you know, Don't the actual you. testing of the bomb. I'll start with you, David. Um, now, when you think about depicting a, uh, an explosion on, on the screen, you know, a lot of uh, a lot of filmmakers will probably go, especially now, with you know VFX, some kind of CGI or, or whatever uh, visual effects that you need to do to depict a bomb. Of course, Christopher Nolan is not going to do that. <laughs> yeah, no. do it differently. He needed it to be as real as possible. Um, for you, what stood out, either technically or from a filmmaking perspective, the whole that whole scene of the the way they, they depicted the testing of, of yep. the bomb. I think for me, um, a lot of it is about the pacing of that scene. Like obviously with a scene where you're anticipating this massive explosion, it, there's going to be a, like a lot of anticipation and stuff like that. Um, but then when they, when they actually get to the explosion, like we don't think about the fact that if this explosion is, uh, what, what was it? 10,000 feet away or whatever, that it would mm -hmm. take a while for the sound to hit you. Right. Um, but like, Obviously, that's like a um, part of physics and stuff like that. But the way that Christopher Nolan used that to kind of make this the moment even more like, like it hit you even harder and there's more anticipation, um, I think it was genius. Um, and I just really loved that, like you were saying earlier, that there was no score at that point. That, um, to be honest with you, like some of my favorite parts in movies um, are silent movements. Um, especially in movies where there's a lot of noise and whatever, and it it kind of like takes you off guard, I guess. Um, especially in a scene where it's about an explosion, you're expecting this like big boom right away or whatever. But he literally like drew it out as long as possible. Yeah. Um, I would be interested to know if it's the same amount of time that it actually would take the sound to hit in ten thousand feet or not. But yeah, um, I wouldn't put it past him. That seemed like um, a really long time though. <laughs> yeah, no, no, but, yeah. But but somebody did the research. I think I was reading on some article that he actually figured out the time and he put that gap in. So it's yeah. Nolan. Well then there you cannot go. go wrong with um, science. Uh, there yeah. was a very <laughs> random tweet by see this is where I get, you know, uh sometimes lay lay like layman viewers, we make like the most stupidest comments. And then you realize one person wrote, oh, it was the most underwhelming scene for me because I would have wanted the light and the sound explosion to come together. And I said, no, light travels faster than sound. It's principle. And Nolan yeah. is not going to go wrong with science. How do you yeah. not get this before making such statements? Yeah, <laughs> like... but, but even so, like even outside of the physics of it and stuff like that, 
Um, I think what it does is it makes the uh, explosion even more dramatic. Um, of like, course. obviously, it was loud the first time around when we went to a standard theater, but in IMAX, like I said, the volume was cranked up to 11. It literally just like hit you in the chest when that happened. Um, yes. And I just, you could almost like, you could almost like feel, again, you could almost feel what the characters are feeling. You know what I mean? Yeah. Um, you could really yeah. feel like how momentous of an occasion this was and how, um, how big of a deal it was. Um, but yeah, I just, I really loved how they did that. I, I still, I can't get over the fact that they didn't use CGI at all. So they used something called force perspective to get the, the shot from behind the characters. Um, and so I heard about that the, between the first and second viewings. And when I watched that and you could see the explosion, I will say that like, like I've seen archival footage of nuclear explosions before. Um, and I will say like, in comparison to what I've seen on video um, and even other movies and stuff like that, I will say the explosion was a little more underwhelming than I expected, but that was only after I knew that it wasn't CGI and whatever. Yeah. Um, and I think, I think that's just natural because like, if you're not going to essentially animate the explosion, like you're not going to be able to make it look quite as grand as it really would be. But that said, I think um, using force perspective to make it seem as big as possible is just like, it, it's a classic um, cinematography move. And I really appreciated it. And the fact that they really didn't use any CGI at all in the whole film was like, yeah, was amazing. pretty cool. Definitely. It was amazing. Uh, so glad David spoke about the technical aspects. The one thing that as a, as somebody who's not technical, uh, is there is a momentary, maybe a few seconds of Oppenheimer breathing. Okay. Mm -hmm. You just hear the breath. I literally yeah. turned around because there was pin drop silence in the theater. I turned around. I said, who's breathing so loudly beside me? Who's doing this? Are you telling then I was like, Stop breathing so loudly. Like, yeah, I was like, who is doing this? And then I I was getting like, my, I realized my heart was beating faster. It's because yeah. it's so impactful. It's just yeah. like three, four seconds of it. But I was like, even to visualize and write that shot, that this is how it's going to be shot. Yeah. who thinks of this because obviously your heart is beating faster like it's like he knows that if this goes wrong the near zero probability of it going wrong would have ended yeah. up in the world being destroyed like the, he i think those three four microseconds or seconds just capture the tension uh in the air and that was brilliant uh just superb i even liked how they showed everybody prepping uh all the characters yeah. how they were prepping like you know yeah. uh so Dennis Quaid and Meg Ryan's son, right? Uh, Jack Quaid, uh, who's the yeah, young, yeah. young Santas. He's like, ah, the car is enough. The windshield is enough. And then Josh Harnett with his outstanding looks walks in with his Ray-Ban aviator kind of, you know, <laughs> colored glasses <laughs> and he sits beside him. And Ben's, Ben's have these tellers characters like going all sunscreen and everything. Yeah. And I was like, yeah. so well, it's which is so reflective, like what's going on with those people's yeah. minds. <laughs> but really, and... The irony was they were taking bets before the bomb yeah. was going to be out. And I'm like, guys, seriously, it's a life and death situation. What you guys are going to create is probably going to destroy the world. How can you be so casual about it? But I don't know. Maybe it was just the emotion of having created yeah. something and to see whether it's successful or not. It's just they, the way they showed the build up was just uh, brilliant. And uh, 
I think one more scene which I liked, and I think Oppenheimer has very few light-hearted moments, and whatever they were came from Matt Damon's character. And I was reading that Grouse wasn't like that in real life. Probably he was more grumpy or just like really stern. Uh, but anyway, Matt Damon being Matt Damon, uh, he says, "So what's the probability that we could destroy the world tonight?" And he says, "Oh, it's near zero. And then he says, "Zero would be nice," <laughs> which I loved. <laughs> Which the way like, Matt Damon yeah. said it was really nice. Yeah, yeah. Well, and so it's like that... it actually makes sense because it's like military, government official. Like, obviously, that would be his perspective. It's like, no, I want zero. Like, that needs. To be, but in but in mathematics, which they they talk about throughout the film, is like there yeah. there is no like no. real proper zero. Yeah. You know what I mean? Like, Absolutely. correct. There is this yeah. like correct. Yeah. And so, correct. Yeah, you're right that he yeah. did bring a lot of lightheartedness to it. Um, I definitely appreciated yeah. his his uh Same. his lines Same. yeah Same. they're so good yeah you know i it's funny like uh you know i mentioned earlier one of the things that i was looking forward to in the movie was how they were going to depict the trinity you know the testing but i love how nolan really flipped my um fascination in that scene because while i was looking forward to that i left being more impressed with the way he depicted the the reaction of the mm-hmm. people, right? Particularly Oppenheimer. I feel like they should give an Oscar to Killian Murphy's eyes. His <laughs> eyes tell a story. Do they tell a story or what? Um, <laughs> because they're, you know, he's in a whole, he displays a whole range of emotions just through his face and his eyes because there's that anxiety. There's yeah. with mixed with that eager anticipation of how this is going to turn out, hopefulness that it will succeed. And after the, you know, after the, they finish testing it, like people are happy and they're rejoicing. There's a slight smile because it's like he is he's excited that it's worked, but almost like a fear also like, oh, wait, what have we done? Like, what is this, um, you know, going to create? And for me, the, I, you know, w- w- looking forward to that scene, how they're going to depict the bomb. I left being more impressed with how Nolan captured all the range of emotions that went through not just Oppenheimer's um, head, but, you know, everyone else involved. And and I think one of the best scenes in the film for me was actually the scene where, you know, I mentioned earlier the celebratory speech where he's he's speaking, but he's also visualizing if, you know, a bomb was dropped here, you know, how it would affect. And it was really (laughs) graphic, you know, the way he depicted the skin peeling off. Yeah, yeah. Um, you know, somebody said if you're talking about uh, if there was a s- award for the best horror film or best horror scene, scene uh, to be yeah. given, this would be it. This would yeah. be it. So yeah. whilst, wh- whilst, you know, there's like I said, there was criticism that it's not about the victims, etc. But I think in that one scene, he captured exactly what has happened. You know, right. it, it was yeah. very telling that the consequences of taking that decision to bomb Japan, especially when the war was over, right? Almost over. Hitler had died. Japan was the only um, uh, access uh, country left fighting. Literally, was there even a reason to drop the bombs is what the question is always asked. And I think that scene is quite compelling uh, in, in that where they are regretting. He's actually, he realizes what has he done? What demons has he unleashed on the world? Right. Uh, yeah. very yeah. telling scene wonderful yeah i would argue yeah. i would argue like um for a, for a movie with a lot of different climaxes i would argue that scene is like 
would be the like traditional climax because like Correct. like I was saying the you know the sound of the stomping and stuff like that was kind of like a you know was showing you ahead of time what was going to happen and kind of um so I, I I really think that he nailed that scene I think it was like Completely. um like you said there were elements of horror in it which I don't love yeah. horror movies so I'm not super familiar neither with that, do I but, yeah neither yeah. do I I'm I'm, um, I'm a scaredy cat <laughs> but of the little ones i've watched and that is what the general view was like yeah very so my brother my brother like i said is into um a lot of uh interesting non-traditional films um but one of the things he is into is horror Mm. um and he he was talking to me afterwards and he was saying like that scene was basically a horror film scene now obviously it doesn't have the classic elements of like you know uh paranormal stuff or you know there's no villain or whatever but like the way that he used the sound like you can't hear the cheering all you can hear is them getting up and down from their chairs and it's this like weird silence and all you're hearing otherwise is you know um what Oppenheimer is saying um just the way that they did that scene was again a very non-traditional way to help you like feel the gravity of what Oppenheimer is feeling in that moment um and like I think my first time around viewing um one of my the things that didn't work for me was I I wrote down that um I didn't feel like it did justice to why he kind of like flipped his perspective on atomic weapons but I feel like when you get when you understand the weight of that scene you see that you know sometimes you know sometimes we we change what we believe over a period of time but then yeah. sometimes there are moments in our lives where it's literally like a switch flips and what you believe changes. And so I think my understanding was like, oh, you know, I felt like it would have taken longer for him to change his mind. But like, you can just see that in that moment when he hears about the bombing in Japan, that he like his whole perspective on all of it flips. Um, And then the other thing that you spoke about earlier is the fact that they didn't show the actual bombing itself. Um, This also goes back and reminds me of a quote that I heard from Christopher Nolan about Dunkirk is that yep. he intentionally didn't show any German soldiers at all um, yeah. or uh, not in very close up or, you know, he didn't humanize them. And the reasoning behind that, and I would assume behind this is like, there's kind of like a glorification that is given to um, these enemies that you see in movies. Like so many movies um, show the the enemy, the bad guys, and it's sort of like, glorifies them when you show them in a way and Mm. i think the way that he completely cuts out any of the um essentially any of the nazis and then also how he cuts out the viewing or the bombing in japan i think it not that it doesn't um i I don't think that it necessarily disrespects you know those people in japan and stuff like that i think that's could be a whole nother film to be honest with you exactly Um, but i think it kind of like it keeps you focused on what's important in the film. Um, and so it's a, again, an, I would say another non-traditional way that Nolan likes to do his films is that he kind of, he can kind of keep it on one perspective the whole time, which I thought was really interesting. Yeah. Because I felt that if, if the movie was focused on Oppenheimer and to just add an element of bombing and the victims and that scene wouldn't have done justice to either yeah. side. and see there are stories to be told right there are characters there are villains and heroes and there are stories to be told he has chosen to tell a part of the story and you should appreciate 
his viewpoint in terms of what he's choosing to tell and that's okay somebody else will come and make a movie about the bombings and the victims and etc and the consequences and that is also something we should be looking and appreciating that okay that's been done and that's the side of the story so to me uh, i think he his i don't think he ever swayed from the fact that this is based off a book this is the story i'm telling and that's what i'm going to do and mind yeah. you as like i said the bombing is not the end of the plot the plot picks up after the bombing and yeah. and goes in a different direction so yeah but um, we've not spoken about two very important people um, one is kitty <laughs> oppenheimer played yeah. by emily blunt <laughs> and yeah. uh, robert downing junior who plays louis tross so um I want to just start off with Emily Blunt and then let you guys take off. Is there's been criticism about Nolan not having great female characters in his movies? Okay, so I've not been very fussed about this. I'm like, okay, fine. He's telling a story from certain set of characters, and that's fine. But um, when Barbie and I'm trying to draw the parallel, Barbie released, and everybody was like, oh, it's a women-centric film, and Ryan Gosling comes out looking amazing and. and i love ran gosling mind you i don't think that's everybody else has done a great job in that movie but to me emily blunt given the space her character got just nailed and ate up every scene she was in kitty oppenheimer was a biologist she was not just a housewife but there's a dialogue where she says i was a biologist and i got upgraded to housewife and it shows <laughs> her turmoil and it shows the turmoil of every woman going through that time in 1940s right and people were like oh there were not enough female representation mind you it was 1940s really how many women did we know were scientists how many women did we know were doing professional jobs right is just the depiction of the times they were in and to yeah. me that's why kitty comes out as such a solid character when the hearing is happening for oppenheimer she tells the lawyer and him who the villain is who is the guy who is behind this obviously like most men end up doing is her views are dismissed <laughs> because they think she's drunk and she's just blabbering which is not she's a very smart woman yeah. and everybody else has kind of caved in at the hearing his you know it's it's not gone the way people should have come out strongly in support of him and emily blunt comes in for the hearing and this guy is badgering all the witnesses right roger Rob, played by Jason Clark, have I got the name right? Amazing um, performance, yeah. What a yeah, performance! Yeah, what? How? How solid a villain he was in that scene. Seriously. And Emily, yeah, and Emily Blunt. He's you feel that she's going to cave in and he's going to badger her, and then he says that you know he's always been helping the communists, and he's like, I don't like how you have phrased it. She just says one <laughs> line that yeah. she yeah. was. Stella, I I really felt she blew my mind away. First half, I was like, why doesn't Emily Blunt have any dialogues, or why doesn't she have many scenes? Because she's a powerful actress. And then I realized she just needed three scenes. One was with Oppenheimer when she, he is grieving, and she chases him and tells him get a grip on yourself. Second was yep. this scene in the hearing, and third is when she refuses to shake hands with Ben Safdie's character, oh. Stella's character. I think that that's one of the best it. scenes. the best scenes her expressions were yeah. mind blowing well, <laughs> so with the with the um voice over of einstein talking to oppenheimer about basically oh like God. when they come and tell you um that they forgive you it's not for yeah. it's not for you it's you. for them you know what i mean like Correct. that when we're talking favorite scenes i think for me that's my favorite scene um but yeah. i do think um the scene 
where Kitty is uh, being essentially interrogated. Um, and she like really fights back because she keeps saying yeah. that to Robert is like, you need to fight back. You need to fight back. And then, so when she finally gets in that room and she fights back, it's like, it's a really powerful scene. Um, and yeah, to the, I was thinking about, you know, um, or I, before I watched it, I was on a website kind of just like looking at um, a few things to anticipate just, uh, you know, like what's in the film. And one of the things to talk about was how there was a lack of diversity. And it's like, obviously, like we're talking about 1940s USA. Yeah. Like there wasn't proper diversity. Um, but I do think that Christopher Nolan did a really good job of elevating um, a lot of the women in the film. Um, and I even think of the, I forget her name, but the, one of the scientists who was a woman, um, and she only had like a few scenes, but like, um, you know, the line where, um, one of the other scientists is saying like, we have no idea, like what this is going to do to your reproductive system. And she's like, well, your reproductive system is more, or is more more exposed than mine. (laughs) Yeah. 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 I was just like, oh my gosh, that was a good one. That was a good (laughs) one. Yeah. And then even honestly, um, even just like the scenes with Jean um, played by Florence Hugh or Pugh, um, those, she did also did a really good job, I thought. Um, and that was a whole nother storyline that I thought was really interesting. Um, yeah. The, uh, you know, like Mino mentioned, Emily Blunt, I agree. She did a, a great performance. Um, Florence Pugh, you know, when I, when I first saw the portrayal and then after the movie, I actually read up a little bit about, the real person as well. And uh, I remember watching the movie thinking like, was this really needed? Like, is this storyline really relevant? Yeah, um, same even I felt so, yeah. It didn't make sense to me. Now, full credit to Florence Pugh. Like she, again, like Emily Blunt, in the few scenes that she got, she did a great job. And I was thinking they could make a separate movie, like a relationship drama, just Killian Murphy, Emily Blunt, and Florence Pugh. Because there's... <laughs> So much to explore in that, and I don't think this is the kind yeah. of movie for it. Well, I also um, think it's a three-hour-long movie. There's something to be said about cutting out an hour and a half of it and making yeah. that out yeah, of this yeah. film. But, we probably uh, could. Yeah, but no. So he, again, you know, talking about the portrayal of women's film, I, I agree with you that, like a lot of complaints, you have to see the context first. You yeah, know, exactly. It, it's easy to jump into criticism and say, hey, where's the representation? Where is the diversity in this? But if you are, let's say if you're making a film uh, about 1800s uh, in the UK, for instance, there are probably not going to be a lot of people from you know Asia or anything. And then you can't like look at that and say, wait a minute. You know, where's the diversity? Where's the representation? So in that same unless, way. Unless you are Shonda Rhimes and writing revisionist history with Bridgerton. And right. I'm like, this doesn't fly. This doesn't fly. Whole other podcast. Whole other podcast. But yeah, I just feel in this, a story about Oppenheimer, they did, he did a good job on depicting the two women who play such a huge yeah role in his life and so I, I I think he did the best that he could as far as portraying them because you don't want it to be a token portrayal you know they have yeah. to add value to the story they have to add value to the film and I thought he found the, the perfect act, actress uh, for these roles and you know they did a great job 
Yeah, I mean, Florence Pugh even said that uh, I, if, if he had asked me to be a barista in the corner and just stand there, <laughs> I would have done it. So I mean, that's the fact that pretty I much what he did for Rami Malek. He said, hey, do you want to come <laughs> appear in a couple of scenes? He's like, sure. <laughs> so um, most of them were like, look, we're just being in a Nolan movie. We don't care what yeah, road yeah. we get. Yeah, we're yeah, just yeah. going to be there. One thing to our CV. Um, were there any other scenes... And, and I want to get to Robert Downey Jr. as well. Oh, we have to. His scenes. But before we get to that, were there any scenes for the two of you that very strongly either worked or did, did, did not work? Like, apart from the ones that we already talked about. Yeah. Yeah. I think uh, for me, the honestly, I didn't understand why there was need for nudity in this movie, to be very honest with Florence Pugh. Yeah, it didn't add any yeah. value to the storyline to me yeah. i think instead if they would have focused because jean tatlock was a psychiatrist so she yeah. and she was a very strong communist i think i i would have liked to have seen more of their conversations around her beliefs and yeah, you right. know why she's so strong-willed the way she is instead of two nude scenes like what value did that add it didn't add any yeah. value to me in my opinion like you could have what i felt sad is that because of those scenes a few of my uh you know the teenagers or uh, uh, my, uh, my friends kids who are really keen to see Oppenheimer cannot go see it in the yeah. theater because of <laughs> yeah. parental guidance issues Thanks, so, no one. I will, cut so, it out <laughs> I will say um, I was talking to my brother about this after we watched it I said the same exact thing I think I'm I'm kind of a prude when it comes to that kind of stuff but even so like I will put up with it if I feel like it's worth it or whatever same. I, yeah, yeah. so there were three scenes where there was nudity and I think for me, the two, um, two of them were had no, like literally no purpose for that. But I will say yeah. the scene in the uh, the private hearing where yeah. you know it's it kind of like comes across and um, Oppenheimer sitting there naked, and then you know that whole like exchange and stuff like that. Where um, for me, I actually felt like that really helped show what Kitty was feeling in that moment. Yes. Um, it yes. was almost I, this like, yeah. it was almost this feeling of like, she was feeling like almost she was feeling naked in this moment of basically her marriage's um, issues being put out in the open like this. Right. Um, and so yeah. I think for me that worked. I think the other scenes for me didn't work. Um, I really Same. think they're kind of pointless. Um, but that yeah. said, uh, another thing my brother and I discussed was talking about, um the famous uh line i am dead or what is it uh now i'm become dead destroyer of worlds now i become death destroyer of worlds um i didn't realize that that was an actual real thing that oppenheimer said obviously it's not his original quote but um what we were talking about is like that first sex scene where he says it kind of gives a little bit of like let's say fictional context of why he would say it like it was sort of like an actual important quote to him versus this sort of like narcissistic scientist that basically says that he you know mm. like he is god he is destroyer of worlds you know what i mean yeah. and so i felt i felt like it did yeah. kind of like justify it a little bit but anyway i i totally agree yeah. that some of that stuff was but, but um, that's a that's a translation used. from the Bhag- bhagavad gita and actually yeah. um I get that it's not actually so it's in in the Gita it is the Kal which is the time not 
death, but that got translated by the German translator as death. And that's how Oppenheimer used the quote. Yeah. So it's not yeah. actually the quote, the Gita is actually around, speaks about Kala as, as time transcends. Okay. So that was yeah. just kind of a little bit of misquotation that happened, uh, but he did yeah. say the exact words that, uh, and that was way after, I think. 20 years or something later after the uh, he was interviewed uh, yeah, after the bombing, yeah. right? It was not immediately, yeah. For you, David, was there any uh, any other scene that either worked or did not work, like, and you felt that very strongly about it? Hmm. It's just hard. So like I said earlier, like, it's such a grand movie that it's hard to really pick out scenes. But I, so what I will say is for me, the two scenes that I liked the most or that's hard to say. There's a lot of scenes I like the most. <laughs> Two of the scenes that I really appreciated that we haven't really fully touched on yet is the opening scene and the and then the last scene as well, which is a to me is like a classic Christopher Nolan thing. Like he always grabs your attention right away, and then always at the very end leaves you with this kind of like yeah uh, this kind of like something to sit on. I mean, the most famous one I think is um, Inception at the end of Inception where the the oh, thing is like the teetering. Thing, the and there's so much <laughs> yeah. debate over. But like famously, Christopher Nolan said that essentially there was no meaning behind it. It's kind of like take from it what you want. But so anyway, yeah. like uh, the first, you know, the beginning that that first quote where it talks about Prometheus giving humans fire and um, basically they tortured him for eternity. I think that kind of helped set the set the mood and then also just set like show you what the movie is about. That it's about a person who um gave the world a very powerful weapon and then essentially for the rest of his life was punished for it um yeah. and at the end of the movie you realize that essentially he's punishing himself just as much as anybody else's um and then that last scene where he's talking to Einstein and he says you know when i came to you with that equation and we weren't sure about the atmospheric ignition or whatever we were worried about destroying the world and he's like well i'm afraid that we did and that's just like how the movie yeah, ends and i'm just like that was like a classic chills moment yeah it was a very powerful ending it just stops there pauses and yeah. the credits roll and you're like damn what just happened i mean that's the yeah. incredible <laughs> part about this movie right i mean you talk everybody talks about christopher nolan the visual effects the acting but the writing some of the quotes yeah, yeah. are just stunners. Incredible. I mean, like the exact quote is, uh, you know, at the end, what, what Oppenheimer is telling Einstein is, when I came to you with those calculations, we thought we might start a chain reaction that would destroy the entire world. I believe we did. Yeah. And then it's all those, yeah. you know, the focus on the eyes and all the, you know, the fission, fusion, whatever. <laughs> it was stunning. <laughs> and also the other one is, uh, Mino, you, you actually noted this. Yeah. They won't fear it until they understand it. And yeah. they won't understand it until they've used it. Yep. All these things, like like you said, makes you like just like sit back and like, wait a minute, I need to like, mm. think on this. <laughs> yeah. And and you know, Benny, I on the first watch, this quote didn't hit me that much. When I went on the second, it is where they are debating, right? The scientists. So they've almost built the bomb and they're debating the war has ended. Why do we still need to use it? That's the debate yeah. going on. And then he comes and tells and puts into perspective because I think he's trying to convince himself yep. that we had a job to do. We can't control what they do with it because he knows that's where it's headed. Yep. And that is how he puts it. And probably I felt that he's just trying to justify his actions when he's realizing what he has created. 
there is a lot to ponder over that scene and and the discussions before it that's happening so it it was it, it was very interesting that's why it, it hit me the second time when i watched it that how uh, how all these actions and consequences people were trying to justify these actions knowing what the consequences would be and that's just to pacify yourself like i yeah. said some actions will never have redemption this was one of them so yeah yeah you know speaking about things um th- speaking about actions and redemptions let's talk about robert downey jr's character uh, <laughs> yes. when i first found out that robert downey jr was in this movie and i was like iron man like <laughs> listen i i i watched a lot of his other movies too but in my mind the last 15 years has been defined by marvel films and yep. when you talk about marvel yeah. films you have to talk about robert downey jr's uh, and his portrayal of iron man so it's really hard to for me to picture him in any other role that's like that's not heroic or that has super you know that's not a superhero and and that's like a, almost like a curse for a lot of the actors right like sometimes yeah. you can find so much success that you can be pigeonholed into it and people cannot see you in anything else and i was thinking oh man during this whole movie i'm going to be like that's iron man uh, <laughs> no and you know uh, funnily enough i was just reading up iron man released i think 2008 which is when dark knight yes. also came about so dark knight is what brought nolan into prominence and yeah. iron man turned the fate of marvel universe right that's the yeah. movie that uh, got us where we are today because of the marvel yeah. universe just imagine then after this whole culmination of what they have done with their movies and respective universes to get them together like nolan and yeah. downey jr coming together I thought that was phenomenal to see him. Yeah. And, and to his credit, you know, our Robert Downey Jr., who I'm going to call RDJ because that sounds cooler. Yes. He <laughs> he had to take a back seat, right? Like th- yeah. this guy's one of the biggest stars in the world, but now he has to take a back seat to Killian Murphy who's an accomplished actor in his own right, but you wouldn't say he's a bigger actor or or more popular actor than RDJ. Right. But he takes a back seat and also takes it's kind of like an un not not the greatest of characters right because yeah. he in one word if i could define the character portrayed by robert downey jr in this strauss he's a very petty man right yeah, yeah. all of his actions yeah. are really because his feelings were hurt and he just <laughs> you know it's all pettiness <laughs> to the fore so he has to portray that he also has to portray like an older person in this right like the he changes his hair is like white haired and and while i was watching it i was like yeah probably the first few minutes i was like yeah that's uh, robert downey jr but after that he was so fully into yeah. that role and you know you talked earlier about how christopher nolan really made all these bureaucratic scenes like these hearings and these investigations he made it look exciting and a large part of that is because of robert downey jr's performance yeah. and not just in the confirmation hearing itself but even like the backdrop of it like you know what led to it and i have to mention that scene which they kind of keep jumping back and forth is when uh oppenheimer meets strauss for the first time but then he's also seeing einstein and so yeah. oppenheimer goes and talks with einstein for a bit you don't know what's going on strauss is very curious and then when he's walking to them einstein walks past him uh strauss greets him oppenheimer uh einstein doesn't say anything and since then he has this thing in his head he's convinced himself 
that Oppenheimer mentioned something to Einstein that's now made him, you know, not like uh, Strauss for some reason. And that's a very good way to, you know, they end the movie with pretty much like what was actually said and that's made so much powerful. Yeah. But RDJ really sells that feeling of like, you know, that hurt feelings and pettiness. I mean, we're talking about historic events and still human beings cannot stop being (laughs) human beings in their, (laughs) even in that kind of moment. And I thought he did a great performance. He did did a great job portraying that. And all of those actors combined, they did a great job. Uh, And yeah, I mean, when you look back now, we're talking about Christopher Nolan, Killian Murphy, but uh, without RDJ's performance, this movie would have been incomplete yeah. because I could agree. Yeah. I could definitely see an Oscar for supporting actor or something like that. Oh, yeah, for, him. for like, sure. Yeah. Well, definitely. Definitely. An incredible job. And uh, like, I think your point is great. Like, he really has for the last decade and a half just been typecast as Iron Man. You know what I mean? I mean, he's done some yeah. other stuff, but like, it, it's, almost, <laughs> it's almost as iconic as like, uh, like Michael Scott, you know what I mean? Like, um, yes. but so, you know what I mean? Like, um, Steve Carell hasn't, I don't know if he'll ever be able to outlive that, but it's I, I the opposite. Yeah. Um, but I think like he did such an incredible job. Um, and like, I don't know, you could just, he just did, I, that's all I can really say. He just did such an incredible job, like of really, especially coming outside of the, of the, type of stuff that he's done previously and i think that he did like for a person who can be so witty and funny he was a very yeah both serious and also like you said petty and just self-obsessed person my favorite quote from him is where he's talking about like um basically that you know power stays in the shadows like that's my favorite quote from him and probably one of my favorite quotes in the movie um it's just like I don't know. It was really interesting. And then there's the whole um, kind of thing that we haven't even talked about is the fact that the movie is half in black and white and color. Um, yeah. And I was how ask about that? Yeah. Yeah. And so I've heard, I've heard multiple perspectives on this. Um, but so the first perspective that I heard about it was that basically color is Killian Murphy's well, Oppenheimer's perspective, his subjective perspective. And that black and white is a more objective reality, basically. But on my second watching, as I was thinking about that, um, I feel like it's actually better put that uh, the color is Oppenheimer's perspective and the black and white is Strauss's perspective. Because there's certain scenes where it repeats um, from the same scene, like elements from the same scene. And sometimes it's in black and white and sometimes it's in color. And every time that it's in black and white, it's strauss is either doing a voiceover or it's like from his perspective or something like that um now i could definitely be challenged on that but like in my second viewing that's kind of how i saw it um and fun little technical fact so the whole film was shot on film not on digital and it was shot in 70 oh. millimeter imax which is uh i mean it's literally like when you see the roll of film it's like i don't know like four or five inches across it's like really big um really high quality film stock that they use um but they actually developed the first black and white imax film stock for the black and white scenes so it's that, not yeah, it's I, not color film that's then made black and white they actually developed a film for it um wow so that's really cool but 
anyway, I thought that that was a really interesting way to kind of like show two people's perspective. And I think I want to say I haven't seen Memento in a long time, but I want to say Memento is also one of those that he goes back and forth with Colin Black and White. Yeah. Um, yeah, yeah, yeah. And I just thought that it was it was just like a really cool way of showing two people's perspectives. Um, and so, yeah, I, I really I really liked how they did that. And I think RDJ did an incredible job of making him seem like a very narcissistic self-possessed uh, kind of uh you know politician who's really only in it for himself you know what i mean correct yeah, yeah. yeah. i think a uh, couple of things where he he said that uh, this is the best film i have been in and i rediscovered yeah. or i reset my acting uh working on yeah. this and <clears throat> benny we should share a few interviews that we saw of the cast what i loved is that uh, where you said, right, RDJ is such a big, big star and he had to take a step back and let Killian take all the center stage and they build, they they are like the supporting pillars for Killian's character to truly uh, come up, come to the uh, fore in this movie. What, what I liked is how much in awe of each other's talent the cast mm-hmm. is off screen mm-hmm. uh, and the immense respect they have for each other's works and they've studied each other's works and, you know, they off, some of them have worked together. Uh, and that camaraderie, which was there off screen, doesn't seem fake. It actually seems like they were together in this movie for. Fif- I I read that he shot it in fifty seven days. I yep. think it's unbelievable to do this. So they all yeah. were in the hotel, all of them together, and they were so appreciative <laughs> of each other's talent and the hard work that has gone in. And RDJ actually said, like, uh, I have not seen any actor do as as much sacrifices that Killian has done for the role. They said Killian wouldn't join them for dinners in the evening after the filming because he was so, his brain was so full with what he has to deliver. And Nolan had put on so many expectations of him. He's like, Killian never really ate, we thought. (laughs) Well, these guys did have their own share of fun, etc. But like, he wasn't there, yeah. But the one scene that I I, I loved, uh, and like I said, because you don't know what RDJ's character is going to do, uh, it it hits you even more and it's nothing there is no momentous music anything when his assistant comes and says did you put the time article it was you and then he realizes there is something wrong and sinister happening and that change of expression uh is what i caught me and you realize what an awesome actor uh rdj is in it and that's the quote um actually david i had put that uh, as well um Amateurs chase the sun and get burnt while power stays in the shadows. And the way he says it is so impactful. And you're like, yeah. oh my God, what a sinister guy. This is, is he's so vindictive. It just hits you. Um, and and I, and I love that. Uh, also his expression when Rami Malek's character comes and gives the testimony, which obviously uh, turns the hearing on its head. He is, he realizes he's lost it. But his ego won't let him accept it, and that tussle uh, in the in the room and before he goes out uh, is yeah. just brilliant. Just brilliant. Yeah, I also love that. Uh, I want to say it was his last scene where basically he's realizing that he didn't get the nomination, and so he he's just sitting there on the couch looking straight ahead, and he's told like that there are a couple of holdouts, and you can just see he sits there. He's like, "I got tonight, didn't I?" <laughs> and it's just like this whole like the weight of the scene. And the way that he acted it, it was just so, like, he was able to quickly pivot in that moment of, like, okay, now I have to deal with the consequences of this or whatever. 
and then and then um uh i forget his name the his assistant or whatever is telling him i alden erin uh, erin rice yeah, yeah. Uh, alden erin rice right so sorry when, if i don't get the pronunciation right <laughs> yeah okay um when he t- tells him like you know you've thought for all these years that basically the scientists have turned against you or whatever He's like, but maybe they were talking about something more important than you. And then he just, yeah, you, yeah exactly. it's just like, oh, awesome. I love that moment. Yeah. You know, uh, so when I was going to the movie, obviously, like I said, sometimes your memory is phased and then you, it like hits you like, oh my God, there was a time when Heisenberg, Niels Bohr, Einstein, Oppenheimer were all oh, alive together. Who's who of science? Hello, Lawrence, <laughs> who's who of science was together. And then you think that, okay, you've seen so many characters and so many names, big names thrown at you. And RDJ asks his assistant, who were the holdouts? And there's a name that pops out. Robert. Sorry, John F. Kennedy. I'm like, that's it. Like, this is the <laughs> pinnacle of who's who. Without yeah. even anybody being there is like John F. Kennedy. Thank you very much, the next president. I'm actually glad <laughs> that Nolan resisted the temptation of putting in like a cameo character for Exactly. Please, that would have been, been a little too much. <laughs> Too yeah. much. You gotta know when to rain it, <laughs> and so exactly. And I think that was just ultimate punch of you know Nolan saying like I've given you so many awesome cameos. Here is one more, but I'm not going to show who plays it. <laughs> so yeah. I I, I yeah. love that. I love that scene. Yeah. So before uh, what I want to do is I want to get into some yeah. pieces of trivia about the film. Yeah. And then we'll get into uh, our closing thoughts on the film. So some piece of trivia. So Oppenheimer is the first script written by Christopher Nolan in the first person as he wanted the narrative to be conveyed from Oppenheimer's perspective. Sixth collaboration between Nolan and Murphy. Uh, the first starring uh, Killian Murphy as the lead. Also the first time Nolan has directed a biopic. Um, and you know, you kind of mentioned this. Christopher Nolan only took three months yeah. for prep, which included reconstructing Los Alamos as it looked during the Manhattan Project and shot the whole thing in just 57 days. I found this uh, fascinating that Rami Malek's small role as David Hill in the film was so impactful that the real-life figure received a Wikipedia article just three days after the film's theatrical <laughs> release. Um, I, I I was actually surprised, Benny, because given that his testimony turned yeah. or, you know, uh, turned the hearing, how was he not known? I, I'm like, Wow, <laughs> because when you yeah. open the Wikipedia page for Strauss, that's the first thing you come to know. He was the man who Poor started guy. this vintage film. <laughs> okay, that's the first thing. So I, that's why I told people, please don't read up about Strauss. Just go without reading up about Strauss. Yeah. But yeah. I'm surprised well, that David Hill doesn't get a mention. Great, but good for him. <laughs> also, another favorite scene of mine, which we didn't talk about, was uh, yeah. the scene where the Secretary of War, Henry Stimson, crosses... Kyoto of the list of potential Japanese cities to bomb because he and his wife honeymooned there. Oh my that God. line was improvised by <laughs> yeah, actor yeah. James Remar uh, with the blessing of Christopher Nolan. Good for him. Um, another thing that I learned about was uh, the director Oliver Stone. Now, he's probably the best director of biopics, at least in my opinion. He once considered making a movie on Oppenheimer, but uh, he turned it down. Um, he said, uh, quote unquote, familiar with a book by Kai Bird and Martin Sherman. I once turned the project down because I couldn't find my way to its essence. And Christopher Nolan has found it. I will share a link for I, when I was reading up on IMDb. There are, there's just amazing um, 
loads of trivia and some of the blunders yeah. that have happened as well okay very interesting i don't think we can cover them all but we should share the link yeah. <laughs> probably we should cut him some slack 57 days yeah so yeah mistakes <laughs> for me my favorite fact was this was the first movie since i want to say shoot i forget which one uh mm-hmm. michael kane wasn't in it right and michael kane has been yeah. in almost every yes. single christian film so i want to say right. it's the first one since maybe his original film the following I forget what which film it was, but he's literally been in every single film for the last like two decades that Christopher Nolan did, and this is the first one in forever. So who do you, who do you think he could have played if Michael Caine was in this film? He could have been. Any... I don't know. I don't know if he has a good American accent. Like, um, obviously, oh, yeah. he has a pretty <laughs> fake British accent, but yeah. if he was going to play anybody, he could have been like one of the politicians or something like that. Yeah. If he did, if he's able to pull off a good American accent. But I, I, I mean, it's. I missed him, obviously, but the movie was still amazing. So I do He's love right. <laughs> Let the man He's get right. some breaths from Christopher <laughs> Nolan. Um, all right, let's. So this is the part where we essentially give our last thoughts on the film and essentially give a rating out of ten, like how many stars out of ten. Yeah. Um, I can, I can go first. Um, Listen, I didn't love this film as you guys did. Okay, I'm, I'm not, I'm not like bursting with this thing. Like, I need to go and watch this movie again in the theater. Uh, I will watch it again when it comes on streaming because Abigail wants to watch it, so we'll watch it together. Uh, and the biggest reason is what I mentioned at the start of this recording that Christopher Nolan is very good at dazzling you with visuals and the way he presents a story, but it doesn't necessarily move you. You don't feel for the characters. You don't feel the, you know, what the characters are feeling necessarily. Like I can see that Oppenheimer is going through a lot of turmoil and probably regret, but I, that is not moving me. And I, it didn't move me in this. Uh, but all that said, this was an amazing way to portray the life of one of the most important figures in world history. Um, and if you look at the last hundred years, probably one of the most, if not the most important person, like Christopher Nolan himself said that he's the most important person in history because he changed the whole concept of war. I mean, the fact is we have not had another world war since then because, you know, if it does happen, then that's truly the end of the world. So yeah, it'll be Im- the end of the world. Yeah. An important figure like that, how do you convey his rise to that position of, you know, like directing this project, um, the actual testing itself, the immediate aftermath, the personal struggles, you know, the vindictiveness that he had to face and, you know, essentially accelerating the end of his career as a, you know, like a physicist in the government. So when you just read it, you know, if you just like look at it, from you take a step back and look at the story or the synopsis, it's like this shouldn't be exciting, even close to exciting. And the fact that Christopher Nolan made it this huge blockbuster, this very intellectual exercise, <laughs> this very intellectual depiction of uh, this character, he made people throng the theaters to watch it in this huge event. Um, you know, that that's really a testament to who Christopher Nolan is, but full credit to you know all the actors particularly Killian Murphy but also RDJ as we mentioned and all of the people who you know behind the scenes so this was like a team effort um and it's truly one of those films that 
for me, it's not my favorite. I think The Dark Knight will still be my favorite, Same. but that's also because I love those kind of films as it is. <laughs> um, but I think Christopher Nolan showed that, hey, you can you can make movies this way too. You can make a biopic this way as well. And th- you can depict or you can visualize a person's inner turmoil this way as well. I mean, we haven't even like touched on the way he presented you know, the struggles, like, um, you know, they had to like debate, do we do this? You know, this, this could lead to so many people losing their lives and like the moral struggle, you know, the moral ambiguity, you know, all this stuff. He, he got into a lot of discussion on that. Another thing we didn't really get in depth in was the politics of it all, you know, like the political, um, almost upbringing, so to speak, like, you know, that Oppenheimer was in his student, uh, from his student to the time that he became like uh, the director of the Manhattan Project. Christopher Nolan packed in so many things (laughs) in this movie that it was a lot. And there's a lot to think about because of the way he's presented it. But to me, at the end of the day, it was just, there was just too many things going on. And he he did a great job, but it's not something that I'm going to be like, yeah, I need to go and watch this movie tomorrow. Um, and, but I know you guys have, have completely different opinions on that. So, you know, that's the nice thing about movies, right? Like two people can watch the same movie and come away with like different perspectives on it. Uh, so I would give this eight out of 10, which almost seems sacrilegious. <laughs> but yeah, um, <laughs> yeah that's, that's what I would give. Eight out of 10 stars for it. And I think... There's just so much that I haven't been able to bring up in this because we don't have time, but just the consequences of the testing as far as at a human level, um, the politics of it all, there's just so much going on. But yeah, overall, great movie, but eight out of (laughs) ten. I think for me, um, you know, I think what Christopher Nolan did in this movie was not necessarily reinvent how a biopic is done, but he he did a biopic in a way that was different than at least I've seen before. Um, and I think he kind of was able to bring in some new elements and some new uh, ways of telling the story that will probably, like most Christopher Nolan movies, change how those types of movies are made. Um, and so I think for me, like, you know, there's a couple of different ways to look at this film, but I just think that they, as I mean, they as a team did an incredible job of telling a story that was really complex and nuanced. Um, and like, I, I just, I think that they did, did the story pretty good justice. Um, and I also think that um, just all the elements of it, the score, the cinematography, the cast and, and acting and all that stuff was just like a grade stuff for me. Um, I, I will say for me, you know, it's hard to grade this in the context of Christopher Nolan films versus just regular films. So for me, I would say it's probably like a nine out of 10. Um, I think for it to be a 10 out of 10, it would have needed to be a little shorter. (laughs) Um, and, uh, just a few little tweaks, but, um, from a, like as a Christopher Nolan film, I would say this is probably one of my favorites. Definitely not, um, definitely not 
my favorite. And I do think I've seen it twice now. I think I'll probably revisit it in a couple of years, but I don't think it's going to be one of those that I keep going back to um, all the time. So in the context of Christopher Nolan films, I'd probably give it like a seven out of 10, which, you know, like, I think, you know, in the context of his films um, is pretty fair. Um, But yeah, I just, I was entertained and really at the end of the day, that's what movies are about. Right. So I liked it. (laughs) Yeah. I think, I think, so I guess the listeners have figured out I'm the most biased person uh, here (laughs) on this podcast. (laughs) No, I, I, because I didn't know what to expect when Nolan makes a biopic and on a, such a sensitive triggering topic uh, for a lot of people, I thought he balanced it right. He just got the balance right. Uh, like I said, he left you thinking about the moral dilemma. What are the consequences of war? Uh, what human petty ambitions can lead to much wider consequences, which the governments and the politicians running the government don't think about. So I think he tackled those layers pretty well, those aspects really well for me. Uh, you guys have summed up everything. For me, it was a great cinematic experience. Uh the background score, the cinematography, the way the story arcs went, the storytelling. I actually enjoy parallel timelines and I I think it's a very difficult task to pull off and not confuse the viewer. And I think after 15 minutes, like I said, you get a complete hang of what's going on. And I I think only Nolan is one of the few directors who can do this uh, and present it to the audience. So all those aspects of the cinematic experience, terrific. I, I loved it. Is it my top favorite Nolan movie? No, which is why I went and watched The Dark Knight again. <laughs> the Dark Knight will remain my favorite Nolan movie. I have to rewatch Inception to see if Oppenheimer will edge Inception for me. Uh, mm. Till now it hasn't. So I think I need to rewatch Inception. It's been quite a few years since I've rewatched uh, Inception. So then I can make a call whether it ties with Inception or it will stay number three. But definitely in my top three Nolan movies. I would rate it 10 on 10. I I loved it so much. But the way I would sum up when I came out of Oppenheimer, the one quote that just hit me to sum up the movie was the Dark Knight's quote. You either die a hero or you live long enough to see yourself become a villain. I think it summed up Oppenheimer's life story just right for me. Yeah, that's my take. (laughs) We're in a race against the Nazis. And I know what it means if the Nazis have a bond. Let's go recruit some scientists. Eight, seven, six, five, four, three, two, one. I think the one thing we can all agree is that while this may not be Christopher Nolan's best work, Chris, you know, even average movies from Christopher Nolan is better than most directors make in their lifetimes. So definitely it gets the seal of approval from talking talkies. Uh, So if you haven't watched Oppenheimer, (laughs) even after all that we have revealed, uh, please do go watch it. It will be, um, an experience that you, you will not forget. Um, and so on that note, I want to thank David. Uh, thanks for making time and sharing your uh, thoughts on it. It nearly didn't happen. 
uh, for reasons we're not going to share on this podcast, but <laughs> we made it work. Uh, so thanks for joining and thanks for sharing, you know, some of those technical insights and uh, your views on it. Of course. Yeah. Thanks. Thanks guys so much for having me. Yeah. Thanks, David. I mean, especially when you were talking about the technical aspects and the bomb scene and, you know, the CGI and we, we wouldn't have understood this as well. So thanks. I'm sure the listeners will appreciate Thank you, guys. Thank you so much for having me. And to our listeners, thanks for listening. Uh, please be sure to follow us on Twitter and Instagram. Our handle is at underscore Talking Talkies. You can subscribe to the podcast for the latest episodes. And do spread the word about the show to your friends. And this has been your host, Benny. And Meenal. And we'll see you at the next movie.